0: Welcome to episode 60 of the Air Force Judge Advocate General School Podcast. Today's show is another installment in our Great Power Competition series, this time focused on China. We're talking with Captain Matt Ormsby, who is currently the Area Defense Counsel at Misawa Air Base, Japan. Captain Ormsby is a three time winner of the National Security Law Writing Competition, as well as the recently announced winner of the Thomas P. Keenan Jr. Award which is given to one Air Force JAG per year for their notable contributions to the development of international law or military operations. We're talking to Captain Ormsby about his recently published article that deals with China and its approach to international law. Outright military conflict with China can never be ruled out, but right now skirmishes are being won and lost on the legal, social, and political battlefields that lie somewhere in the gray zone between peaceful cooperation and outright war. One of those legal battlefields involves international law, and the systems that seek to enforce that law among participating states. We hope you enjoy this episode where we'll spend some time looking at a seminal case in that realm that involves a dispute between China and the Philippines from 2013. But first I ask Captain Ormsby to provide some setup to give us a sense of what has happened over the last few decades that led us to where we are now.
1: Absolutely. My paper starts with the premise of the Pax Americana, so the historical term uh, for that period of um, long-sustained peace and prosperity following World War II, uh, end of the Cold War years, and eventually the great power competition with Russia and China following the fall of the wall in late uh, 1989. And what I say in the paper is that we're likely in those the twilight years of that peace when American power and, and might was at its pinnacle. And American influence, military power, they all appear, by uh, by some accounts at least, to be waning in recent years, and that we may be conceding ground to China following several years of uh, major economic growth from them. Um, and the, the Chinese Communist Party pumping resources nonstop into the Chinese military. Um, and so that should come as no surprise, I think, that, that China has been growing by leaps and bounds for several years now. That's been the case. But if that is the case, and things, and things can always change, obviously, but if that is the case, if that's the trajectory that we're currently on, then we need a, a very multifaceted national defense strategy. So not just to counter China militarily, but also a sturdy international law kind of infrastructure and architecture to uphold legal rights and humanitarian norms because if china continues to expand and expand its regional influence over neighbors in uh, uh, the south china sea there will there will obviously be disputes hopefully non-military disputes but diplomatic and economic and legal disputes involving american allies Um, so japan where i'm based out of uh, but also Taiwan, the Philippines, Korea, the list goes on. And when those disputes arise, uh, we hope that rather than armed conflicts, we hope that legal arguments will be the weapon of choice um, in tandem with diplomatic and, and economic options, of course, as well. Um, but if that's the case, we need to be focusing on our legal arsenal alongside the traditional warfighting mission.
0: Yeah, that makes sense. And it certainly echoes what we're hearing um, from our leaders and in the news these days about uh, about China's rapidly growing uh, influence over especially that part of the world and then and America's, I guess, fight to remain uh, in power in some sense. So you, you exactly. kind of talked about uh, China's China's growth over the last few years, or at least the last few decades, and uh, I want to say somewhere in your paper, maybe you talk about their their GDP growing, you know, exponentially greater than than ours certainly, and than most other countries in the similar time frame. What have been some of the uh, some of the drivers of that growth that's taken China from where it was, say in the in the 50s and 60s, um, to where it is now?
1: Yeah, they've had an incredible economic engine. Uh, I mean, for decades, China's economy has just been expanding um, with almost 10% gross domestic products, so GDP growth, every year since, um, since the mid-70s, since uh, 1978. Um, so you maybe heard the phrase, it's the economy, stupid. And that's exactly the case with China here. Uh, the, the economy is really driving everything else uh, for the country. So in terms of GDP, you know, China's been the second largest global economy behind only the U.S. Um, there have been several estimates that China will surpass the U.S. as the largest global economy in the near future, which is a scary thought. Um, it, you know, One of the drivers has been global trade. China is the largest merchandise trading partner of 64 countries, so basically one out of three countries in the world China is the largest merchandising trading partner, and that includes Germany, uh, so so major trading uh, uh, nations like Germany. The U.S. counts only 38 countries for its part. Um, And more recently, I think experts are, they're still unraveling the numbers on on what the COVID era has done to to both Chinese and American markets beyond um, just these immediate conclusions, but at least early signs were that overall China's economy rebounded Uh, nicely in late 2020 and 2021. And so with that economic growth, you get other forms of national power going as well. Um, For military power, for example, um, by at least one estimate, Uh, I know China's military capabilities could be on par with American military capabilities by 2035. Um, Scary estimates, obviously. And again, a lot can happen in the near future. But these educated predictions are starting to show a clear picture that China is sizing up. And that's a direct challenge to the US. Um, I think that's probably why the the most recent US national security security strategy from 2017, calls China, a a quote, revisionist state. In other words, China is a state that wants to create a new order, a new post west global order, um, that doesn't feature America first, that they want to bring Chinese interests to the front of the line and minimize U.S. interests, uh, and also make a statement about authoritarian rule making sense in the 21st century. Uh, I think the U.S. was for many years the the undisputed world leader, right? You had a a unipolar world that centered um, among many interests, but certainly American wants and needs because America could call the shots. And China's now saying wait you know what about a multipolar world uh, what about other leading powers what about other states like us that can rival the us by many measures we want that opportunity we want to t- we, we want we want to call the shots now as well and so I know we're expecting the Pentagon's 2022 national defense strategy uh, shortly it may even be released by the time this podcast uh, is published and I expect it is still going to be focusing on integrated deterrence and keeping us uh, keeping a very close eye on China, um, because part of that means China is flexing more than ever in the South China Sea against its neighbors. Uh, they've been intimidating. They've been harassing others out of offshore resources. They've been seizing land, even creating islands from nothing, um, while essentially acting like the neighborhood bully
0: so that's that's kind of generally and economically really some of the background in uh in the chinese rise and then maybe the the u.s kind of uh i guess decline at least in global influence like you said the interests of our countries it's not nearly as easy now for us to just kind of impose or protect our interests in all corners uh, like it may have been for 50 or 60 years following world war ii But uh, more specifically now moving to kind of the how China is operating in international spaces. And right now, I'm kind of talking figuratively at first, and then later we'll we'll look kind of where literally and physically they are trying to occupy international spaces. Uh, but how do, how is that looking as far as uh, what sorts of things they're now uh, willing to or apparently willing to kind of participate in in terms of international law?
1: Yeah, and, and I'll start with a little bit from from part two of my paper, a, where I'm basically talking about while China continues to build up its military, um, I, I think it would be foolish for them to outright challenge the US in any sort of military confrontation. I mean, never say never, of course, but I think it would be unlikely at this point. So what I think we'll continue to see is more of a contest, a tug of war for allegiance, you know, not only regionally, but globally, uh, rather than outright survival, like you'd see in a conventional war. Um, But while that plays out, I think China's going to strengthen its approach to international law and dispute settlement. Um, And that's notable because for many, many, many years, China was very critical of the international legal order that was led by the West. The People's Republic of China was founded in 1949. And basically from that time through the next phases, from the reforming and opening up policy uh, in the 70s and late 70s, China was really skeptical of the Western legal system. Um, It had had basically very little to do with the international legal order until that time. But as China's gradually opening up to the outside world, starting that time and since the late 70s, you see a lot of changes going on. And that was great for its economy. We already talked about that. And and it was a part of the impetus for the economy beginning its boom years. But it also made China a, a big concern for international lawyers. And what you see is China joining more and more international organizations, meaning it's accepting more legal constraints from the outside. Um, Many of those constraints just come with club membership to various organizations. But I think at the same time, China is basically quietly resigning itself to constraints in the international legal system because if it didn't accept certain terms of membership, international law could become a very real impediment to the country's steady rise. Um, So China was very insular up until the 70s, and then it stepped kind of grudgingly into the Western system. And that that meant change for the Chinese, obviously, but also a level of uncertainty from the West about how China would interpret international law as the newcomer. So in the beginning, China's approach to international law, the use of, dispute resolution for international disputes, it was very unclear. Um, To this day, a little bit unclear, but especially back then. Um, And the bottom line is China was probably uh, anxious and fearful of international adjudication. Um, The Chinese up until that time had traditionally favored private negotiation um, and consultation over public hearings. Um, And this is partly why parties even today can opt for private mediation or arbitration proceedings, um, because it gives—it basically excludes outside observers, um, obviously unlike a public trial, and it keeps China's legal interpretations private, which is, I think, how they preferred it. So China didn't initially want to submit to voluntary jurisdiction uh over any sort of arbitration tribunal um especially one that could that could hand down uh a binding award or hold these transparent proceedings uh all of which could very much publicly uh, embarrass uh the chinese and publicly harm their
0: interests and that uh, all of that has a lot to do with or that's coming to, gonna come into play for sure when we get into the details of that uh philippines uh, arbitration but um just before we do can you spend a few minutes to- um, walking us through some of the key moments, key other moments in that evolution from um, barely, you know, barely dealing with the international order back pre-1970s um, to now uh, where we are in some of those, uh, I guess, landmark moments or decisions along the way.
1: One moment in particular was China's admission to the World Trade Organization, the WTO, in 2001. Um, And the WTO is the international organization for uh, really overseeing and regulating international trade between nations. And in plain English, it's basically the world's largest international economic body. Uh, And member states to the WTO um, is virtually every state in the the world. They make up about 98% of global trade. So you very much need to belong to the WTO if you want a piece of the pie. So entry to, entry to this organization and sort of all the benefits that come with it were, I think, very important to China as it hoped to, to grow its economy further and regulate economic ties with other nations. So China was able to join in 2001 and a lot changed in that year. China signaled kind of an evolving approach to international dispute resolution. And that's largely because admission to the WTO with all of its benefits requires a dispute settlement authority with mandatory jurisdiction over all WTO members. You can't opt out of it. Um, and so basically what that is is an internal body that says, look, if, if two or more states are having disputes about tariffs, taxes, what, what have you, um, you, you submit to this body you can't opt out of it. Uh, it will be uh, a proceeding overseen by the WTO that will hand down a binding award, uh, potentially to one of those um, uh, parties. And so China is effectively saying, look, if, if we wanna be part of this club, we have to agree to it. And so since that time, China has come before the WTO dispute settlement body several times, uh, numerous times, both as complainant and, and respondent. And that's offered a very clear sign that China will grudgingly accept international constraints if it means access to a larger market and greater reliability with other nations. Um, There have been a few uh, notable decisions with the International Monetary Fund uh, and the World Bank as well. But uh, one other, um, I guess, point during the evolution, one point of interest is in carbon emissions reductions as well. A key milestone was China breaking ground in the Paris Agreement by finally acknowledging that it will need to reduce emissions, um, but only eventually. So uh, it was a key player in advocating for keeping pledges to reduce carbon emissions, voluntary only. Uh, in other words, no binding a part of it. And to be fair, the US did the same, right? But You know, according to some sources like the Climate Action Tracker, um, China's contribution to date in this respect has been highly insufficient. Uh, It it is basically not on target for global carbon reduction. So all of these moments and historic glimpses into China's evolution, I think they all hint basically at a nickname that China has gotten over several years, which is it is the reluctant player. China wants the benefits of membership, but without all the obligations, if it can manage that. It wants to hang with the rich countries, but at the same time wants to label itself as a developing country. It wants to have its cake and eat it too, basically. And so I think the the Chinese Communist Party secretly wants nothing more than to overtake the US in every category, but it's biding its time, and it's it's difficult to, to overtake the US When there are these Western led organizations, whether it's economic, environmental or legal, um, that are holding its back, holding it back. Uh, So this is a a huge and very complicated topic, but hopefully some of those points in the evolution help to highlight how China has kind of changed from the 70s to present.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And especially uh, your comments about their action on climate change and and kind of where they're at versus where where they were, you know hoped to be or expected to be or kind of maybe where they promised to start heading uh is uh, is pretty analogous to the case we're going to look at now in a little more in a little more detail and that's the, this arbitration that had to do with uh china's actions in the in the south china sea and how those impacted some of their uh, regional neighbor states and uh and basically how they how they entered into that or or whether they really entered into that, and then uh, and then how they reacted to the decision that was handed down. So now, for the rest of our time, if you can kind of just uh, talk through how that came about and the, the main thrust of those claims, and then where it where it went and where we are now uh, based on that proceeding.
1: Absolutely. In my paper, I focus on the landmark um, arbitration, the Philippines versus China. And that was an arbitration proceeding that was filed in January 2013. And it was a high stakes dispute over territorial access um, effectively to the Spratly Islands in the South China Sea, among other claims. And I focused on this arbitration in particular because it renewed questions over um, China's approach to international law and how it may be shifting. I think it made clear that China would not always take a reliable approach to international law
0: in international
1: adjudications, um, where China was contesting jurisdiction and access to land and water features and saying it owes nothing to aggrieved neighbors and effectively flouting awards uh, from a tribunal that were held against it. Um, So this, this 2013 arbitration proceeding was all about entitlements in the South China Sea which many listeners probably know is this massive body of water and land features that's incredibly important for defense reasons, for natural resources, um, fishing, energy, trade routes, the list goes on. And for these reasons, the sea is a real focal point for disputes over territory and, and maritime rights between China, and, and members of the Association of Southeast Asian Nations, and that includes Philippines, uh, Vietnam, and Malaysia. And even before the arbitration, this all begins with China claiming sovereignty over virtually all South China Sea Islands in their adjacent waters. Uh, and China effectively says, look, our sovereignty, it's historically established, it's historically uncontested, um, but the Philippines certainly contested at these absolute claims. So even before the arbitration, China and the Philippines held uh, rounds of negotiations, and they had an unwritten arrangement to resolve this dispute between themselves. And that'll be important later. Now, one of the main Chinese complaints was that the Philippines later initiated this arbitration proceeding in 2013 before the permanent court of arbitration with 15 claims against China, seeking a decision basically entitling the Philippines to maritime entitlements um, in and around the the Spratly Islands. And for its part, China argued uh, the UN Convention on the Law of the Sea, uh, which will come up again later, that convention mandates that if there are disputing parties to the convention and they've agreed to settle dispute by any means, quote unquote, of their own choice, then the dispute settlement proceeding under the Law of Sea Convention only applies if there's been no settlement reached by such means. So Manila, uh, so the Philippines said in their filings with the Court of Arbitration that they were more than justified because there had been these these talks, but certainly no settlement had in fact been reached between the two states um, and nor were the bilateral talks binding. But China clung to that unspoken agreement not to turn to a third party for dispute resolution. I don't think they were right in that case. Effectively, it was saying these settlement talks were still ongoing. Though, I mean, by that argument, they could say that in perpetuity and say, look, we're gonna stay in these talks until we think that it's done, until we say that they're done. Um, That's kind of an excuse for them to to say that into perpetuity. Uh, And China said it would neither accept nor participate in the arbitration proceeding. Effectively, we're, we're not gonna have anything to do with it because we don't think it was right to bring in the first place, even though it's it's dubious whether they have a legal leg to stand on there. And so um, the first shocking move was Beijing basically said, we're not even gonna participate. And if there's an award years from now, we're not gonna enforce it. Um, and And so we're not participating, period. So do whatever you want. So it came as a shock obviously to many because it effectively said we can't take for granted that China is on board with the constraints of binding international law. We can't take for granted that they're going to agree to dispute resolution if it doesn't happen to suit their their, you know, preferences. Uh, particularly particularly when a tribunal is threatening to hand down a decision that China doesn't like that really may impact their economy and their trade routes and their defense posture and that's really worrisome because it's a it's a probably the boldest example of China completely refusing to even consider dispute resolution um, especially when in you know transnational disputes are routinely settled by tribunals um, who want to enforce an international law so if China is genuinely wants greater involvement, in the fabric of of these international organizations, international trade, you got to pay to play. You take the sweet with the sour. And so for international organizations, that's worrisome when when China is such a big player. It has a lot of sway. It has a lot of cloud. uh, And with that, you potentially get the ability to alter the rules or at least bend the rules. So um, uh, the arbitration was started in January, 2013, and uh, it took, a few years of filings and going back and forth. But in October of 2015, uh, a five-judge tribunal in The Hague, again, this is the the Permanent Court of Arbitration, they found that they did have jurisdiction over the dispute and and over the parties, and they accepted seven out of the 15 submissions um, from the Philippines. And the Philippines did not explicitly ask for the tribunal to rule on, on whether China or the Philippines or any other state, you know, holds or should hold sovereignty over any of the geological features in the South China Sea. At least they didn't explicitly ask for that. Um, and they're filing under the Law of Sea Convention, that UN Convention. And, and that convention has gives no authority to make those kind of judgments. Um, its purpose is to provide a legal order um, identifying the characteristics of the marine environment in, in any sort of rights and responsibilities of states to use that environment, and so it's important to note that even for some of the eight submissions that were not initially granted jurisdiction by the court, the court did later grant jurisdiction, at least in part or in whole, uh, at the merits stage of the hearing. Um, it's a you know this is this this whole hearing could could be the subject of several hours. So this is kind of a very much on the surface. But again, China said look, we don't care in no way uh, about this proceeding. Um, The tribunal's award will be null and void, and that was their messaging from from very early on. Well, the tribunal was unfazed um, by China's non-participation, and eventually they did render a final award in favor of the Philippines um, in July of 2016. And it was uh, virtually an across-the-board win for the Philippines. The broadest claim from the Philippines was a direct challenge to China's nine-dash line, so that territorial line that covers most of South China Sea. China has never really clarified whether the line is supposed to be a claim to the islands within the line and their nearby waters, or a boundary of national sovereignty just over the waters, or a quote-unquote historic claim, of sovereignty or other historic rights, it's it's been kind of vague about that, and, and partly for that reason, the Philippines wanted a declaration. They wanted an award saying, uh, you know, addressing the country's respective rights and obligations for the waters, for the seabed, for maritime features of the sea uh, that are governed by that Convention of the Law of the Sea. And the panel held that the the Sea Convention comprehensively governs parties' respective rights to the maritime areas and the south china sea and so the bottom line is china's nine dash line claim of these quote-unquote historic rights is legally invalid basically any historic rights china had were extinguished when the sea convention was earlier adopted um, there was also a claim uh, to have certain land features in the Spratly islands characterized as you know, either islands, rocks, low tide elevations, submerged banks, uh, you know, it really gets in the weeds here. It, it sounds un- uninteresting maybe, but, but based on how these geographical features are labeled and categorized, that would then give rights to an exclusive economic zone of up to 200 nautical miles. So basically a space for uh, a state to, to use it for, you know, mining or other resources. And there too, the the panel basically found that none of the land features there generated an exclusive economic zone. And therefore they said uh, certain areas are within the Philippines greater exclusive economic zone and not overlapped by any Chinese entitlements. So uh, again, a win for the Philippines in terms of being able to use that area uh, for all the various means. Um, China again said, (laughs) We don't care right we're, we're still treating this award as meaningless um it, and maybe that was their posturing from the very beginning because when they saw these claims and what the philippines had to back them up they may have been thinking for the long game that look if this does go to the findings portion of the the, the court hearing we're very likely going to lose like they did and so the surest bet may be to to fight the jurisdiction in the first place and say not submitting to the court so anything that they determine later on is not going to be binding on us so that's kind of a little bit about the arbitration politically around this time president rodrigo duterte he won the filipino election for president in may 2016. so basically a couple months before that final tribunal award court and pretty soon thereafter the philippines Uh, just happened to issue a joint statement with China, and they're taking a very, a much softer approach to their dispute. Um, They're jointly promising new negotiations. Uh, Philippines is not opting to leverage the uh, tribunal award. Uh, So this in itself raises doubts about whether President Duterte's administration um, would discredit any international tribunals, right, whether they actually wanted to rely on the the permanent court of arbitration, uh, or maybe they had fears that, great, we got this award, but uh, how do you enforce it? You know, if it's an unenforceable award, what what good is it to us at the end of the day? Or, you know, another option is maybe the award was just pursued as a kind of leverage all along to bring China to the table for, for more serious negotiations because, earlier talks were, were not fruitful but in any event I mean the tribunal award was shocking. It was a huge win for the Philippines. It was unprecedented and I think it revealed um, uh, how China was going to approach certain um, certain hearings like this, certain claims when it could foresee that you know what the outcome may not be great for our national interests and for our defense posture uh, but it definitely meant reputational harm. china it definitely meant loss of credibility i think at that point so it's it's pretty clear uh, that china acted poorly in the entire arbitration proceeding Uh, it it tried to make an argument to avoid jurisdiction which uh, many scholars many pundits viewed as um, a very flimsy justification without a lot to back it up um you know china insulted the tribunal without uh much explanation and ultimately said that the award was meaningless and they were not gonna honor it.
0: So as we kind of close this uh, this part of the conversation, uh, looking at that one case, what kind of conclusions do you think it's safe to draw uh, or at least, I guess, hypothesize about China's approach writ large to international law and norms and arbitration agreements in the future?
1: Yeah, I'll draw back to the nickname that I I cited earlier for China, which is the reluctant player. And I think this really highlights that China will use international law and adjudication to its benefit when it's only to the benefit of China, at least so far. And I mean, it's been a few years since this arbitration. But I think it lays bare that China will go to great lengths to discredit the Permanent Court of Arbitration, so a very renowned body that hears routinely hears international disputes between uh, parties, including the US, China, Germany, the list goes on, uh, that they will go so far as to say, we're not going to play. We're not going to participate. This is uh, an outcome that we don't want to see uh, very likely because the final award is not going to be to their benefit, but they will go so far as to say, we're not even going to participate. So you see them on the one hand wanting to integrate themselves into the fabric of these international organizations, economic, environmental, legal, and other diplomatic organizations. You see them wanting to reap the benefits, but when it comes to a situation where they stand to lose a lot, because they may be in the wrong, and they may have to concede ground on these long-held claims about historic rights to the South China Sea, you see them uh, effectively acting acting like a child, throwing throwing a temper tantrum, and saying the whole time, um, "You guys don't have the authority to to decide this dispute." We were still speaking with the Philippines um, one-on-one. We were according to them, still making progress, even though the record doesn't seem to show that progress is being made at this point and that the Philippines did file a good-faith complaint against China uh, and the Permanent Court of Arbitration. But it just really calls to question what lengths China will go to to avoid a bad outcome, especially when it goes to the core beliefs and the core tenets of the Chinese Communist
0: Party. Excellent. Well, thank you for that informative explanation of of what's what's kind of going on with uh with regards to china and its approach to international law it does sound like uh it's i don't know it almost sounds like they would like for the rest of the world to accept them as willing parties to these agreements uh, uh, up until that might harm their their preferred outcome or their national interest which uh, certainly, I think you used the word worrisome, is certainly a little worrisome for, uh, for how to conduct ourselves as an international order going forward, especially with the uh, economic uh, influence that China currently wields. So that was uh, certainly enlightening, uh, very interesting to see how this is going on and how this kind of dispute is, is on news feeds uh, pretty regularly and how uh, some of the background of it informs what we're seeing now. So thank you for uh, lending your expertise. Uh, we enjoyed reading your article on this, and we look forward to talking to you again soon about uh, another part of it, um, a little more uh, specifics, especially with regards to the uh, to the legal field that we all occupy. So Cap uh, Mornsby, I really appreciate it. Thanks uh, for joining us, and we'll talk to you again soon. All right. Thank you very much. Thank you for listening to another episode of the Air Force Judge Advocate General School Podcast. You can find this and all our available episodes, transcriptions, and show notes at www.dot.jagreporter.dot.af.dot.mil/slash/podcasts. You can also find us on Apple, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you like to listen. Please give us a like, a rating, a follow, or a subscription. Nothing from this show should be construed as legal advice. Please consult an attorney for any legal issues. Nothing in this show is endorsed by the federal government, the United States Air Force, or any of its components. All content and opinions are those of the guests and hosts. Thanks.